0: Hello. There is a realm the unloved call home. It's Newcastle. While they are there, they watch those films whose reputations, or lack of them, precede them. This is Cinema Limbo, a place for films worthy of re-evaluation. Tonight's film is the 2001 comedy, Freddy Got Fingered, starring, co-written and directed by Tom Green. Joining me for this seminar is my good friend Chris Arnsby who once described parallel universe-based TV series Sliders as every week it's like, what if hats wore people? And this episode was recorded in his little house on the longest road in South London. I was introduced to this film by my older sister, who had seen it somewhere, and she told me about it and she thought it would be the sort of thing that I would enjoy. I'd heard about it because it had this phenomenal reputation of being one of the worst films ever made of being an incredibly bad taste so I was quite sceptical because my sister and I have very different tastes in movies she's always making jokes about how I'm always the exact opposite of the prevailing trend but it turned up on TV and I watched it and I thought, wow, this is something completely different it's a very original in its way and it goes to places where most comedies don't have the guts to go particularly bad taste comedies, which always end up making jokes about black people and gay people. And this is making jokes about horse penises and um, cheese and um, disabled people liking kinky sex. I showed it to my other sister, and we got about ten minutes in before she turned to me and said, what's wrong with him? (laughs)
1: Which was kind of my reaction as well, because not knowing really what else to do. I, I went into this not really knowing anything about the film. I have got this kind of distant, half-remembered memory of it being talked about quite a lot in whenever it came out, ni- late 90s? 2001.
0: 2001, yeah, okay, slightly
1: this. later than I thought. And I seem to remember it was a relatively big deal at the time. But I, know, I knew nothing about it. There's a clip on YouTube from Family Guy Which is a cutaway to tom green dressed in a ballet dancer's tutu and sucking on a goat's teat, and then he turns to the camera and goes does everybody like me now and that's kind of the sum knowledge that i have of tom green i just went to this not knowing anything about it and i kind of deliberately didn't do any research and i still haven't read anything about it because yeah i kind of I, i have my own theories and opinions about the film and i almost don't want them to be contradicted by anything else it's Something that you said, you used the phrase something completely different, and something that did strike me about it, and this is going to sound a bit pseudo-intellectual, so apologies in advance, it's getting into the same sort of territory as Monty Python's Flying Circus, in that within the structure of the film, it's quite subversive.
0: But I don't know if that's deliberate or accidental. I think a lot of it is just being done to provoke. Mm. Because Tom Green started out ...having this public access TV show in Canada... ...which was like an extreme Beatles about... ...and his preferred victims of his pranks... ...were his own parents. Right, okay. And you can see where some of the humour in the film comes yeah. from... ...where he's victimising his own parents so much. And that was sufficiently successful... ...so that it was made a national TV show... ...and I think a version was made for MTV in America... Mm. And *Steamroller* is a huge success, and eventually he was just handed the keys by Paramount to say, we'd like you to make a movie, write, direct, yourself, and it was co-written with a friend of his, and star in it. And it's a lot of trust to give someone who's never made a movie before $11 million, even though that isn't a huge amount, to say, whatever it is you're doing is popular. We don't understand it, but people like it, and we want you to do a movie of it. And as a result, he makes this. Well, and that was when, when it got towards the end. There was a whole point when
1: I began to wonder if it was art imitating life, because there's obviously there's the whole sequence at the end where he's got, I've got a million dollars, and he starts spending it on all kinds of stuff, and you get into the sequence with the helicopter where he's flying in. And it is tempting to wonder whether it's just them deliberately blowing through the budget on the most ridiculous things <laughs> that they can think of. There are elements of the whole business with zebras in America where they give him a cheque and he just goes off and immediately starts spending it. And you think, OK, is this echoing what happened with the film? I didn't hate it, but there was definitely a point about halfway through where I would quite happily have said Tom Green's character die. And I don't know whether that's intentional or not. I just was utterly out of sympathy with him. About halfway through the film, I was rooting for the dad. But you get to the end, and it kind of puts everything in a little bit more perspective. And the problem I keep having with this film is I don't know how much credit to give the writer and the creative team behind it. There's a lot of stuff that I could speculate about, but I just, I'm just i genuinely just not sure whether I'm projecting my own theories onto it it kind of seems to be ridiculing the structure of teen movies so that there's the whole business of the mean dad where Rip Torn, who's,
0: who's brilliant, of course... I mean, yeah. you know, I I mean, did... The thing is, knowing what we know now about him, that he broke into a bank because he thought it was his own house... Oh, yes, yeah. One, one is wondering... It's got him fired from Men in Black 3. One wonders how much of this is... Maybe they chose him because they knew that he's actually a nut. Mm. I mean, this was this would have been after he'd been
1: in the Larry Sanders show as well, wouldn't it? Because that was early 90s, I think. Uh, well, this was, as I say, it was about
0: 2001, yeah, 2002, yeah. so, 2002, so would it would be have been oh, long after it started, yeah. yeah. It's a
1: fantastic cast. I mean, you've got Rip Torn as the dad. The mum really bugged me for ages. I was watching the film going, where have I seen you before? It's Judy um, Haggerty from
0: Airplane. Yes,
1: that's exactly it. And I kind of recognised she's got this very sort of nervous... Fragile performance, and it, and I couldn't work out where it was. But yes, yeah, it was aeroplane. Uh, sorry, air, air, <laughs> aeroplane, aer, aeroplane. Um, A popular air... film, aircraft. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> okay, uh, yeah. You go through the film, and there's the whole business with the mean dad, and I'm left wondering whether that's deliberately meant to parody other teen films, where there is the kid that's got the dream, and the dad doesn't understand him, and. You know, the kid's just working to get his daddy's approval. And, you know, and that's what seems to be going on through this film. But at the same time, what's actually going on is nonsense. It's a bit like um, with the day, something like The Day to Today, where Armando Inoukli and Chris Morris worked out that you could take the format of the news, but if you poured nonsense in at the start, then what you got was a very serious news report about... The Home Secretary going down into the London Underground to kill rogue horses with a special hammer <laughs> <laughs> it
0: was a special gun. Was it a special I like, gun I like the idea of a special hammer?
1: Yeah. And this is the same thing. This is like this is the structure of a film where somebody is working to gain the approval of their dad, but the actual content of it is just ridiculous. You get the part, you get the moment when Tom Green's character accuses his dad of
0: fingering Freddy. which is probably my favourite scene in the movie because yeah. it's it's it comes out of nowhere Mm. it's based on nothing it's more just that he's just trolling his own family for no reason other than his own amusement and also he's just because his dad is so controlling himself and he's just fighting back by just throwing out this complete gibberish and then he just put both feet on the accelerator and plays the rest of the scene at absolute the highest Mm. pitch throwing the statue through the window leaping out of it and running away in slow motion That's and, and screaming, he's a child,
1: Molester! The tone of the film is all over the place. There were times when people react naturally to Tom Green's mm. antics. There's times when it's deliberately cartoonish, and it's just, it's all over the place. And I am left with the feeling that it's like the structure of a proper Hollywood film, but with nonsense fed in. And so you get this very, very weird subversive, which goes back to what I was saying about Monty Python's Fly Circus, where apparently... The I think it was John Cleese or somebody said that he had comments from people. They said that once they'd watched Monty Python's Flying Circus, they weren't able to watch the news because suddenly it made what was going on in the world seem ridiculous. And that's kind of the same thing here in that it takes this very sensible format puts nonsense in, gets nonsense out. You look at something like The Green Lantern... Not The Green Lantern. Yes, it is The Green Lantern, isn't it, where everybody has daddy issues in that film. Oh, God, that's a terrible film. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I, I think, does even the alien gas or whatever the hell it is at the end of the film, I think that has daddy (laughs) issues. The space gas. Yes, yeah, I think everybody has daddy issues in that film. And that's what this seems to be powering with the relationship between. But I come back to this thing that
0: I don't know how. But but it is. I just have that connection to Green's own life mm. that he did have this incredibly bizarre combative relationship with his own parents, and probably still does. Yeah. There's a segment in his in his TV show where he had the bonnet of their car spray painted with a pornographic image. Which I won't describe for the good mental health of our listener. Okay, nice. I'm sure Google Images will turn something up. Oh,
1: I looked it (laughs) (laughs) there. Right. As a film, it genuinely wrong footed me. I mean, I went into it not knowing anything about it. I didn't even know if it was a A a fictional film. Well, yeah, I didn't, or whether it was just like. um, Jackass or something, you know. It was oh right, just like a sequence a sequence of, of outrageous right. So I kind of went into it, and it starts and it's got again, it's got this very traditional teen movie opening. You know, he gets up, he gets on the skateboard, he skateboards through the shopping mall, and it's exactly the kind of thing that you would expect to see in a teen movie. The relationship with the dad is exactly the same thing you'd expect to see in a teen movie. Even the soundtrack is exactly the same thing you'd expect to see in a teen movie, and it, the film kind of had me questioning my own interpretation at the end of it, because when it starts playing, is it Slim Shady at the end?
0: Yeah, at the end credits, yeah.
1: I'm not sure whether it's just playing that, because that's the kind of song you would expect to hear at the end of a teen film. And that, this, is, this is where I genuinely don't know if Tom Green has come up with something actually subversive, or the whole thing is just an accident. <laughs> I basically, I don't trust him enough to have come up with something... At times, this seems to be very, very clever... And I'm not sure I trust him enough to have come up with something this clever. I could believe it was an accident.
0: As, I believe, Davidson Hubbins said, there's a very fine line between clever and stupid. Yeah. And this zigzags all over the line. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, you're right about the, the beginning being like the opening of a teen movie, and it plays like that. Mm. All the way through that opening bit, he's going to get on the bus. That says, oh, you're not getting on that bus because I'm giving you a yeah. car. And so I'm going to make you proud, proud, proud. And he's just about to pull away, and someone walks in front of the car and says, Get the fuck out of the way! And Which was ad-libbed, because that expert was just wandering out without even being directed. OK, I didn't know that. But it just suddenly, like, oh, this is going in a different direction to where it looked like. There were two things.
1: I mean, that was the first genuine laugh of the film for me. I actually... Yeah, uh, exactly, a
0: completely... It came out, no, it's a,
1: but it's a, it, it's a really good joke, and it's partly it's the repetition of the word proud, but then again you've got these very strange non-naturalistic performances where
0: they're cutting between two people who are basically just repeating the word proud <laughs> <crowded> of <laughs> each other. If we go by the idea that it's deliberately subversive, it's just cutting down that kind of scene mm. to just one word each. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Just, and just turning it from something that's very familiar and structured into gibberish. Yes,
1: yeah. Yeah, and so you put nonsense out, you put nonsense in, and you get nonsense out. Yeah, and then he, it cuts to him driving down the motorway and staring at a horse's
0: erection. Yes,
1: <laughs> an erect ejaculating horse's penis,
0: I believe. Or did I just imagine? I was watching it in high it's... definition. <laughs> I, yeah, I was unfortunately I could only watch it in um, on DVD. Uh, well, we've, we're already talking about the horse's direction. I believe that was natural lubrication. OK, because While it seemed to be problem. coming out of the side rather than the end. I, yeah, I... Mum, you're not allowed to listen to any more of this.
1: <laughs> that goes for you as well, Mum. And when did you get an MP3 player anyway? And, but that's, and, and so the tone is all over the place. You get that bit that's obviously meant to be shocking. But the film kind of backs itself into a corner at that point because at that point my reaction was, go ahead outrage me. You know, is that the best you've got? And it kind of undercuts, so you get the sequence later with the deer where he's skinning it which I assume is a real deer but I'm kind of sitting there going ah, I'm not going to be, imp- I refuse to be impressed
0: by this <laughs> Well there's the punchline to that is where he's hit by the truck and and going back to the cartoonist thing that would have turned him into yes. Salsa but instead, <laughs> he flies on the road. He's actually hit by a... Uh, it's, it's a dummy that's hit. The dummy's foot flies off. Oh, right, I missed that. Um, and he slides about 100 yards down the road. And then he just gets up and he's fine.
1: Yeah, and, <laughs> that, and, and, and so the tone is all over the place. <laughs> One minute, it's a relatively naturalistic comedy. One minute, it's weird cartoon stuff. There's a bit... You have the whole sequence where he goes and talks to the head of the animation studio who says, you must get inside the characters... And then a minute later, and I know it's a minute later because I was sad enough to go back in time. this, (laughs) he's driving down the road, he sees the dead deer, car stops, and Tom Green mutters to himself, get inside the character. Yeah, he does. And then you see this little sort of thinks bubble or something comes up with the same guy, and it's as if the filmmakers don't trust the audience enough to remember something that was only being talked about a minute ago. And, that's, and there were moments when the film is trying to be as outrageous as possible, but then there were other moments when the film doesn't seem to trust the audience.
0: Um, and I can't get a grip on it. <laughs> or it may just be reinforcing that cliche. Possibly. That, that, it's, that it has literally just been 30 seconds since that's been said. But but normally that would be sort of a callback over hmm. a longer period of time. So they're just going to put the callback in anyway, less than a minute later. True. And I do, since we're talking about T movies, I do like the gag that. Dave and head of the animation studio, is played by Anthony Michael Hall, star of The Breakfast Club. Oh, wow. Right. And all these 80s teen movies, and is now... Looks completely different. Looks like he's a terrifying guy. I mean, he looks really menacing in this. And it's an outrage, incidentally, that he isn't the lead in the remake of Vacation. Oh, wow. Right. Instead, it's Ed Helms, the comedy Black Hole. Because yes. Anthony Michael Hall should... Have lead roles. He's actually a really great actor.
1: Yeah, well, the, 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 the good people at Red Letter Media described Ed Helms even more cruelly than <laughs> I, that, know, really. I know
0: they did, and I pulled back from that because yeah. I thought that's maybe a bit unfair yeah, yeah. to um, people who suffer from that particular disease.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just worried that for any uh,
0: apologies to. If you haven't seen the film yet, it's too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should uh, either watch the film before listening to this or don't worry about spoilers. Yeah, definitely
1: don't worry about spoilers because I'm I'm all I'm going to trample all over this film. Um but it's more just the fact that I'm aware that you know and it's the nature of the film actually one thing makes you think of one bit and you go well what about that because in the closing credits at the end they have outtakes and I think there's an outtake of Tom Green during the deer sequence where he sort of stands up dressed in the blooded skin And says something like, "What the fuck am I doing?" And I thought that was a mistake to put that bit in because that is like peeking behind the curtain. Suddenly, it's not Tom. Nearly called him Tom Cruise.
0: (laughs) Suddenly, it's not Tom Cruise covered in blood. Yeah, that would would never happen. Um, Suddenly, it's not
1: Tom Green wacky character. It's Tom Green. Cynical accountant going, you know, this is the kind of thing that the, my jaded viewing public wants to say, and so it's, as I say, I find it very, very hard to
0: get a grip on this film because it's, it's all over the place, and I suspect deliberately so. I agree. I mean that, that little act, I, th- I see that's just him at the end of his hit realising, This is a ridiculous way to earn hmm. a living. <laughs> you know, I should, I should be doing stand up, knots, yeah. covering myself in entrails for a laugh. Uh, so, talking me earlier about the the reception film had when it came out I found some critical quotes hmm. uh, Leonard Maltin, the um, highly regarded US critic said that it was everything wrong with movie comedy <laughs> Roger Ebert was very scathing about it said so that it didn't even deserve to be mentioned in the same phrase as bottom of the barrel
1: oh, well yeah Roger Ebert said a lot of things about films didn't he and he had quite a few films that he didn't seem to like
0: um, yeah I've looked through some of his uh, reviews and he has some he always cared, and mm. he was very important in communicating a love of film to the general public. And it's hard to argue that. In the same way that Martin Scorsese has done a lot of very, very important work in preserving film history. Mm. But that doesn't mean that all his films are great, because no. I think that think he's actually got overrated as a filmmaker. <laughs> CNN said that this was the worst film ever released by a major Hollywood studio. Oh no! I, I I'm sure if you gave me a few minutes,
1: I could think of some. But the, with the Green Lantern, uh, mind you, the Green Lantern came out afterwards. But yeah, yeah. maybe
0: uh, Moulin Rouge I think came out the same year, and I think Moulin Rouge is unwatchable.
1: <laughs> I quite I watched, I watched the first
0: twenty minutes and I had to go for a walk <laughs> okay. because my brain hurt. Uh, the Toronto Star gave it minus one out of five. <laughs> but the trouble is that 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 sometimes partly negative reviews in a film like
1: this is almost self defeating because. You always get the... You can just, this film is almost kind of critic-proof, in that you can just point to it... You can point to the reaction and go, well, that's the reaction I wanted to get. Or that, you know, that people would just go, that, that it's so bad, it's good, or all those mm. kinds of phrases. But, yeah, I can imagine it didn't go down particularly well.
0: <laughs> well, the New York Times compared it to conceptual art. OK. And said it was, it, it was interesting rather than entertaining... Yeah. And Chris Rock has actually said it's one of his favourite films. I can see where the New York Times
1: is coming from
0: with the because as I was gonna say I think you can see why the New York Times would say that because it's the New York Times. Well yes, obviously. <laughs> Pinko um i've read the new york times and they're it's like they're like new labor <laughs> oh they say they're left wing uh okay
1: <laughs> yeah i can see it's it's a film that i, I can look at it and I, can, I i can look at it and i can be all sort of beard stroking and go yes i can see that there's something terribly interesting going on here i come back to what i, I think i said early on i didn't hate it
0: <laughs> i've been through this i've made quite a few notes um but as you said, that's the first laugh of the film about him screaming at the guys he's driving off. Hmm. I, did, I did like when um, uh, Freddie's with the rest of the family to see Gord off. The main character's name, by the way, is Gord Brady. We haven't mentioned that so far. Hmm. And he says, Oh, why did, how come he gets a car and I don't? And Gord replies, It's because they love me more than they love you. Yes. <laughs> it just says a very flat, matter of fact yeah. way. And of course, the, the gag is that his dad pretty much hates (laughs) Gord. And his mum barely tolerates him because he's her son and because that's the Mm. obligation. And you get to the end of the film and
1: it is that thing that, again, makes me think that this is parodying a typical teen movie, in that the moment Tom Green's character becomes successful, his dad loves her and they have a great relationship. And then you get to the whole sequence in in pa- pakistan in pakistan where they they've bonded and their relationship has healed and they sh- <laughs> they share a, they share an emotional father-son moment
0: while covered in elephant juice <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah because even though he hasn't sort of followed the the traditional path hmm. he's actually found something he's good at and made a go of it and become a success, yeah. which is what his dad wants exactly. And his dad wants him to, to be sort of more commercial, but he's, he's made a success of it. He's made a go of it, and that's what's paid off. And I think it's that's the part for me that feels the most autobiographical. That mm. Becoming a, a TV star and then making a movie in a way he's he wants you know, wants approval of his own parents. Yeah, I, mean, every, you know, I can imagine most people do want approval from their parents in whatever it is that they're doing. And it's kind of calling for it in this by saying, "No, yeah, well, we've got a very combative relationship, but you know, I've made, I've done something. I made a movie, hmm.
1: and that's it." And I, I forget who it was. I was listening or reading to something recently where somebody the, the, the sort of the final summing up was that, regardless of what they thought of this particular film, and all I remember was that they hated it. They said that at the end you had to admire the fact that they had actually made a movie because that's not. It's not something most people get to do. And that in itself, I guess, is an achievement. And to have made this particular movie, as I say, um,
0: well done, you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that actually ties into something else that I've said. Jim, Gord's dad, is accused of having fingered Freddie. And the social services turn up at the family home. And there's actually a little in-joke there because Freddie is watching some kind of medical programme on TV. He's actually watching a special Tom McGreen made about his own surgery for testicular cancer.
1: Oh, is that... Because I saw at the end there was a credit for MTV and I couldn't quite work out where that had come from. Yeah. I mean, there's the bit in the children's home at the end where the kids are obviously watching something massively unsuitable
0: on TV as well. Which is, that, yeah, that's the, the thing. It's that it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I've said before is a film that is absolutely terrible but I respect the fact that they actually managed to get it made because they're they really working hard mm. in awful conditions and they made something that's almost unwatchably poor, <laughs> but it is, but they did actually finish but it. But they made it, yeah. yeah.
1: And again, to the, an example of how this film completely wrong-footed me from the beginning, I assumed that Tom Green's character was going to be called Freddy and at some point he would be fingered in an amusing fashion. <laughs> uh, and it's not. It's, it, it, you know, it, uh, Freddy is the brother... But the whole storyline with the social services coming to take him away and take him to a place of safety is done completely non-naturalistically. Everyone reacts as if he's a kid, and he isn't. But the storyline proceeds exactly... I, I'm, I'm struggling now to, to, to come up with the, the right words to describe it, but it is that thing that everyone
0: just acts as they would do. It's absurdist, and, it's like, and it yeah. does tie in with it being like Monty Python, hmm. it with this grown man in a children's home that rings a bell with the Monty Python schedule. But, yeah, I mean, that's the
1: classic example where there will be something... So yeah, something absurd will happen, but people will continue to react to it as if it was the most normal thing at all. Yeah, yeah, absurdist is 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 exactly the right word that I couldn't find just now.
0: It's very uh, Louis Bunuel, I think. Yes. It's very Spanish <laughs> surrealist.
1: Yes, quite. If, if I knew... I mean, I've, I've seen that Salvador Dali film with the ants and the lady and how well, I and that's
0: probably it's probably uh,
1: probably thematically similar
0: yeah one could make one could draw that comparison that it's very much like Tom Green pulling a actually yeah because that's got dead animals in it as well it has actually. because it's got the dead donkey on top of a piano being moved across the road it's almost exactly like a scene from this film I just watched the bit with the ants and the eye and that was me done really <laughs> It's about like 20 minutes after that. It's great. Uh, OK. It didn't hold my attention. Another bit I've written down is the whole sequence where he arrives at the uh, animation studio to talk to whoever it is who is in charge. Mm. He doesn't even know their name. He just claims, runs him in the symbol. Oh, it just says, uh, Boss. Yeah. And um, he winds up lying outrageously, claiming that the man's wife is dead, and he's got to tell him because he's from the police and that he's actually Quincy. Yes, yeah. And the next time we see him, he's running into a restaurant <laughs> dressed as a British bobby. Yeah. Complete with helmet, which I guess... Uh, I'd completely forgotten that bit. And I had to stop at the disc because I was laughing so oh. much. at this ridiculous. Like, of a suit. And he's wearing the outfit that's clearly too big for him as well. Which mm. is just that extra cherry on top of the joke.
1: I've been a bit snobby about the... The shot, con- listen to me talking about shot composition, Mom. Um, I was a bit snobby <laughs> about some of the shot composition earlier because you get things like when he pulls up outside the animation studio for the first time, there's a cutaway shot to the animation studio sign, and then it cuts back to him in the car and he sort of nods thoughtfully. And it, you just look at it and think, yeah, you couldn't get the car to stop in the right place to get the shot you wanted. So I was a bit snobby about some of the direction, but then there's a very nicely simple little bit in the restaurant where he's running around shouting and again because I've made no notes on this film I can't remember the names of any of the characters what's the name of the head of the animation studio? Dave Davison Dave Davidson, you'd think I'd be able to remember that I know because
0: he makes it out of thin air and it happens to be correct Oh, right. which is and again it's the absurdest part it's that the world is slowly starting to bend to his will. You yeah, I didn't even pick
1: up, on, uh, pick up on that bit. But, yeah, anyway, so he's running around shouting, Dave Davison, I'm looking, and he's going, are you, Dave Davison, are you, Dave Davison? And he's a woman as yes, well. <laughs> but he says it, and then the camera shifts slightly to the left, and that's when she comes on screen, and that's quite a nice little sort of pullback and reveal
0: joke in a way. There's something that I do notice in some films that I've been covering for this podcast, is that if you have a director who's very inexperienced if you have an experienced and capable crew Mm. then that will cover any problems and any sort of lack of ability that they might have simply just not having made it before Yeah. Uh, because for example with The Wicker Man you have a director who's not made a film before but a very experienced crew and the result is that it's a very well directed film because you have someone who has the ideas and a crew who knows how to make that work Yeah. and then you watch The Wicker Tree and you have a director who still hasn't had that much experience 40 years later and a crew that doesn't really know what they're doing, and as <laughs> a result, you have a film that's a complete car crash. <laughs> oh
1: Apparently, Orson Welles was was terrible for that. He'd take money to appear in somebody's film, and then he'd walk on set and look at it and go, "Oh, you're going to put the camera there, are you?" And it would kind of set the tone
0: for the rest of the day. Rather. Well, Orson Welles would just take the money and then do whatever mm. he wanted, and then do some more frozen pea commercials. <laughs> yeah, that sounded <laughs> poor muscle. <weird, Russell. laughs> Listener, if you haven't heard the outtakes from Austin Wells' commercials for Paul Masson wines, you really need to listen to them because they're hilarious. Because you get—is that one where he gets more and more drunk all the way through? i am not. sure. I'm I think of I, something else. I
1: think I've heard the one for the Birds Eye frozen peas commercial where he's actually arguing with the people that wrote the advert about exactly about which words should
0: go in which order. But I haven't heard the other one. It's not audio outtakes. It's actually video outtakes. But he, no. I think that he's just drinking glass after glass after glass of it and is getting more and more drunk and it's obviously i mean it's terrible to begin with and mm. wildly coming off down in here but i mean it, it's just this very cheesy crappy commercial <laughs> but it just gets more and more off the rails as it goes on i mean it's almost like the outtakes of tom baker doing the commercials for symphony i've forgotten what symphony is were they furniture showroom I couldn't uh, that one's passed me by oh you've never heard this no no Um, it it was commercials I think I think it's a furniture showroom called Symphony which no longer exists but Tom is clearly getting more and more pissed off by this rubbish that he's supposed to say and he winds up up coming up with the catchphrase or the tagline rather Symphony even for monkey shaggers (laughs) Actually, while we're t- on the subject of terrible voiceovers
1: and adverts, there's a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis advert for a film called The Caddy, I think it is, where they do the voiceover for that and they start bickering and criticising the film and again. So, yeah, but in summary, lots of lots of actors said lots of terrible things <laughs> in voiceover, and luckily these days most of them are on YouTube, so go and listen to them.
0: Yeah, that they are. Re- really worth your time. But watching Freddy Got Fingered, something that I, I didn't know is that it's in places it's like reminds me of an Adam Sandler film, but in reverse, because in those you are in the position of the Adam Sandler character where he is the normal one and everyone else is weird, even though mm. clearly he's a horrible parody of humanity. <laughs> and in this, you're on the outside looking in, and so everyone else is fairly normal but he's the one who's weird, but he's the protagonist in the movie. Mm. The one bit we haven't talked about yet is the
1: sausages. Oh, yes! um, But, you know, that's one particular bit where his dad comes in and specifically talks about what's going on and and is outraged by Tom Green's antics. And, and And that, again, is just one of the things that adds to the peculiarness of the film, is that at times people seem to be able to see what Tom Green's doing and react to it as anybody would. And I'm not sure, were bits of this basically shot as hidden camera,
0: or was it all done if, uh, properly as a film? As far as I know, it was all shot properly, scripted. Okay. Um, which bits were you thinking? About There's camera? the bit in the bank where
1: some, maybe it was just the direction of the extras, but when he comes into the bank at the end because he's got the check for a million dollars. There's just something about the way that the extras start kind of looking around and it's
0: it's just not quite clear whether they're in on the joke or not, but... It could be the way that the whole thing was directed, where hmm. they the extras hadn't been briefed on what was going to happen.
1: Yeah, that would make sense. And they're not quite sure what to do or whether they're even being paid
0: to react or whether... If, they... Exactly, and they certainly wouldn't have... If they're certainly not allowed to speak on camera, as far as I know, depending, depending on union rules.
1: There's another... I mean, the second good laugh of the film friend. I'm kind of embarrassed that this got a laugh out of me it's the bit at the cheese factory when he's on the conveyor belt and he takes an enormous German smoked cheese and jams it between his legs and I think starts shouting about how sexy he is and I'm he a sexy boy that's it and then it cuts and he's moving sideways along the conveyor belt with this German sausage between his legs and it whacks up against the side of this poor woman's head and then very very slowly scrapes all the way over the top of her <laughs> head and all credit to the to the lady concerned. She does. I, I don't know whether she's been directed to just not react at all. But what makes it incredibly funny is is the la, is the polite non reaction, as if there's just nothing going on.
0: Exactly. It's it's like if I ignore him, mm. he'll just go away. He'll go away, and yeah. he will because he's on a conveyor belt. And the fact that he's shouting "ding dong, ding dong" as he's going on for no reason, yeah, just because it's funny, yeah. Which is the, pretty much the tagline of the whole movie. There's no reason for this other than it's funny. <laughs> yes, and then
1: you but you get other bits. I think it's what you were saying about um, it, it feeling like an Adam Sandler film in in places. The point where I was getting particularly fed up with the the Tom Green character, and it cuts to a restaurant, and again you just think, oh, I, oh, I thought, uh, yeah, oh no, it's it, it. There's something about the establishing shot. It's like the world's most cliched. Well, look at this swanky joint. I sure hope Tom Green's wacky character puts these squares <laughs> noses into joint. And it's it's actually and again, maybe it's deliberate, but it's like the most predictable setup to to somebody's outrageous antics causing people to become upset. And that again is a bit like an Adam Sandler film where it's snobs
0: versus slobs yeah, every yeah. single time. And you're meant to sympathize with the slobs, yeah even though the slobs are actually horrible as yes. well. I mean, in, in the case of Freddy Got Fingered, I think there is a difference in that Gore doesn't really have a problem with wealthy, well-to-do people in and of themselves. And he goes to a fancy restaurant because it's a fancy restaurant because yes, yeah. he wants to impress his new girlfriend and yeah. you know, because he's lied about being an investment banker.
1: Which, and you, it, again, go back to the thing about the, the structure of a typical teen movie is exactly the kind of scene that you would expect to see in yeah. that sort of
0: thing. He's lied about being more important than he is yes. and he's going to get found out. Because his parents are at the same restaurant his Dad confronts him. And then they just both spontaneously freak out. Yes. And <laughs> Gord starts smashing up the string quartet and spraying everyone with club soda.
1: And I think, again, that was the point where like, it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear, honestly. But um, <laughs> it, it, I wasn't sure whether this was being filmed hidden camera or whether it was just set up on a, a, a as a soundstage or something. It... Because, again, something about the reaction of the extras, I, I, I just couldn't quite work it out. But uh, I suspect by the sounds of it, it was all just done... Um, I mean, not meant to be done here in camera, and maybe the extras were just told...
0: That various people are s- being sprayed as he's waving around the, the nozzles from the, behind the bar. And I don't think there's much reaction. No. And, and, I, and I think they've been deliberately said, whatever happens, don't react, just carry on with what you would be doing, just eating yeah. meal and talking to whoever else is at your table and I think that makes it funnier because it's, it's going back to the absurdist thing again mm. of refusing to respond to this weird situation as though it's weird, just sort of incorporating that into your world and
1: Yeah, well you're back to some of the bits like the sort of Leslie Nielsen in Airplane or something where things would happen and Leslie Nielsen would just have a completely
0: deadpan reaction to it and so I suppose, yeah, it's, it's a movie of Leslie Nielsen's there's a better, everyone is a Leslie Nielsen in this movie, except Tom Green and Rip Torn. Yes.
1: Yeah, possibly. Uh, see, the other thing that's strange about the film is that only Tom Green is allowed to be wacky and outrageous or Rip Torn. But when the girlfriend starts coming on to him, he suddenly, his character then suddenly becomes very sort of shy and embarrassed. And it is almost this thing, it's as if, Tom Green's character is the only one that's allowed to do anything crazy. And the moment another character starts doing something crazy, it's meant—it's suddenly meant to be shocking, but not shocking in a way that is look at these outrageous stunts. It's—I
0: can't again. Sorry, I'm completely failing to articulate something. Which uh, he—he goes over to her flat, and if you haven't seen the movie, the point is that he's met this girl in the hospital. She's a nurse there. And it's only after they've sort of made arrangements for a date, he realises she's in a wheelchair. So he goes over to her flat, and they have a nice little time, and she persuades him to beat her paralysed legs with a bamboo cane. Yes. And then and he gets a bit carried away and accidentally hits her in the face.
1: Yeah, which again is, is, is actually quite a good joke. But that's a bit where the film suddenly... And this is what... I think this is what I was saying about it. It's as if it's only Tom Green's character that's allowed to be outrageous. Given that by this point in this film we've had ejaculating horse cocks, or possibly not, I mean, it could be lubricant. It's, that's well, that's an was, argument for another it was, day.
0: It was definitely moist.
1: Yes. <laughs> so you've had that, you've had deer being gutted. The, the birth scene... Oh yes, yeah, the birth scene with the baby literally flying out of the woman, <laughs> which again is is just such a, a ludicrously cartoony scene. That mm.
0: oh, and um, his best friend, his best friend. Oh yes, has his best yeah, friend schedule, spent years yeah. building this little halfpipe in Gord's family's driveway, and they finally finish it late at night. And Gord has a, a couple of goes on it, which gives Tommy another excuse to show off his skateboarding skills. And then the friend goes on it and immediately falls, smashes his leg. Really horribly in an open fracture, which Gord then licks. Yes. So you've seen all this stuff, and then might have been hospital, and you had the birth. Yeah. Yeah, but you've seen so you've seen all this stuff.
1: But then when he's beating the girlfriend's legs with a bamboo cane, there's no blood because that
0: would be gross. I think in terms of the context, it's 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 an awkward scene because it's. So... I, th- I think because. The whole point is that I assume that she gets pleasure from it, from its, its kind of violence without mm. any suffering. And it's, I, I don't really know, I don't really know many people like that. I don't know about you. Well,
1: um, <laughs> well yes, um, but, but you know, but it's, it, it's just so... because suddenly it's like the movie's going, oh, we don't want to go too far. It's like, but I thought that was the whole point of this film was to go too far. And yet that bit is is, is suddenly it's a weird little bit of consequence free violence. And I don't understand how it can suddenly get po-faced about that and suddenly get po-faced about her explicitly being sexual with Tom Green. And yet there's all this other stuff going on. It's it's a very it's it's a bit where the film suddenly doesn't seem to be sure of what it's doing. I think
0: well, there's that whole bit where it's, he's, he's very shy and insecure about sex, which, believe it or not, I feel is actually a, a, a bit of character detail, because it's not a film that's very heavy on complex characterisation, but the idea that he is actually quite insecure... Hmm. And maybe that's why he's always doing this crazy, outrageous nonsense. But it's, all more, it's a kind of
1: overcompensation. The only example that springs to mind is the bit Back to the Future, when um, Marty's in the car with his mum. And his, isn't his original plan that he's going to make a pass at her and she's going to be outraged? Or am I completely misremembering It's, it's the more that
0: the, um, they're going to be fooling around in some way, and then George that's is it. going to open the door and say, yeah, Hey, yeah. stop! stop that.
1: That's it, of course, yeah, yeah. And actually what happens is that, that Marty's mum starts coming onto him and suddenly he's... And, so and, he, and he panics. Yeah, so that kind of panicky reaction to sex again is something that's a reasonably well-established point in sort of teen
0: films. But in that, that's different, because in Back to the Future, that's his mum. Well, yes, yeah, I mean, obviously that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, actually that seems the reason why Disney refused to make the movie. Really? Because they refuse to make a film in which a mum comes on to her own son. Honestly, yeah. I mean, this political correctness gone mad, isn't it? I know. But but at the end of getting around, it was such a brilliant line, where she kisses him and he pulls away and Marty's looking absolutely horrified and she says, I don't know what's going on, but when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. And immediately... Bang. That's yeah. all resolved with one line of dialogue. Yeah. yeah. And that's that is why Back to the Future is one of the best written films I've ever oh, seen. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean I, I think that the, the I think it falls outside of the realms of this podcast because
0: the consensus on Back to the Future is that it's it's a perfect film. Yeah, um, it's yeah. I mean as as someone who has tried writing Screenplays myself, it's a, a tough day when you realise you'll never write anything as good as Back to the Future because it's perfect.
1: But, uh, but, I mean, that's, that's the example that springs to mind of somebody being embarrassed in the presence of somebody else that's being obviously sexual. I'm sure there are other examples. It's just I've kind of blanked on. And also I haven't watched... I, I, so I've sort of disinterestedly watched The Breakfast Club when it was on TV once. And that's about... haven't seen any other... I uh, haven't seen Sixteen Candles or Pretty in Pink. I think Weird Science was an essential part of my teenage viewing growing up, but that was wow. about it.
0: You were a boy of the 80s. I know, That's yeah. That's understandable.
1: So you don't have much knowledge of John Hughes? No, in fact, to the point where... You're I, a
0: disgrace.
1: To the point where I was actually just trying to mention film titles in the hope that I didn't have to bring up the name of the guy that I couldn't
0: quite remember. Um, you must have seen Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I haven't even seen Baby's Day Out, so... Oh, yeah, about 1990, John Hughes stopped making films for teenagers and he started making films for his own children and I don't think it's fair to say that the quality of them dropped but they stopped being entertaining to anyone over the age of 10 so okay. we have Beethoven you have Baby Day Out he wrote a number of screenplays under a pseudonym including um, Made in Manhattan oh <laughs> it was Made in Manhattan and Drobot Taylor which I think was produced after his death but um yeah, but I think the, the turning point was um, no, alone. Home Alone.
1: No, I haven't. I have seen Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I didn't get it, sorry. Get <laughs> I out. Think this might be the point, yes, yeah. They, they would. I'll I just stay silent for an hour on. No, it's one of those films that a bit like Goonies and things. There's, there's these films that other people obviously have a real fondness for, but just pass me by.
0: That's fair enough. I was listening to a, um, a podcast discussion the other day about Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Oh, uh, yes. So the yeah. X-Files, yeah. which I had just watched as I'm working my way through the whole series. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is interesting and it's quite entertaining and it's got some great dialogue and it's got a great supporting performance, but I don't find it particularly profound. And then I was listening to this podcast and it mm. was... So that's two- the a- X-Files files, is that the one? That's the one, yes. yes. And it was the, the two, the, the host, Camille Nanjiani and his guest, talking about how... Hmm. how life-changing how profound I thought it was and I thought I really don't relate to anything you're saying it's It's great it's great that it was that important to you and that it opened these doors of perception and ways of thinking and it was clearly very life-changing and that's great but it left me completely dead cold
1: yeah
0: but Freddie got figured, didn't leave you, Carl, did it?
1: No, no. It did, as I say, I, I went through the entire rainbow of emotions. I think from uh, fear, hatred, to, disgust, yes, yeah, joy, denial. and uh, anger. Yeah, I mean, it. Yes. Um, it, it, no. I mean, if if the purpose of art is to provoke an emotional reaction, then it, it certainly provoked several. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it genuinely it succeeded on that level. I um, still, having said all this stuff and having thrown around you know, Monty Python and Back to the Future and that kind of stuff, I honestly still don't know whether I
0: could say it's a good film or not, but it's definitely a film. It's definitely a thing that yes. occurred. I think it was in the text message that you sent me after you watched it. That was <laughs> definitely a thing. Yes. That's definitely an object. I mean, there are lots of little throwaway bits in it that I I like as just little bits of comic invention, hmm. like the sausage piano, because that's, yes. that comes out of the... the the, um, the conversation he has with his girlfriend, Betty, where she says that to, to help his creative process, he should try listening to some music or try, try having you know, something to eat. And, and mm. he, mis- he misunderstands this and thinks that he's supposed to do all those things at once. So he's playing the piano with strings tied to his hands that are connected to sausages hanging from the ceiling that are going up and down, while he's also trying to draw his animation sketches with the other hand. And his father comes home and he starts just randomly hammering out chords on the piano. He goes, "Daddy, would you like some sausage?" As they sort of sausages and flying up and down in the ceiling.
1: I don't know if you asked me what the correct number of sausages to hang on pieces of string from the ceiling was to be funny, I'd have to point to that scene because they got the number exactly right. Well, I assume it's ten. Fewer than that, and it wouldn't. There wouldn't have been enough, and too many, and it would have just looked stupid. It would have just been a wall of sausages. Yeah, but for some reason, no, as and it 's the fact as well that obviously some are attached to one hand and some are attached to, to the other, so only
0: some of them go some of them go up and some of them go down and and they 're all crossed over as well, yeah, so it 's not like the ones on the left and the ones on the right, so it makes it more and also uh, okay, so it's this, this weird image and also they're
1: not a praise-for-the-props guy at this point because they're not just tied on in the middle because that would be boring. Some of them are tied on at one end, so you've got some sausages that are hanging from one end, some sausages that are hanging in a sort of U-shape because they've been tied in the middle, and it's the mixture that makes it funny. It's it's exactly the right number of sausages, there. and it looked, genuinely, it manages to be really grotesque but really funny as he starts playing the keyboard, and these damn sausages start... Jerking up and down.
0: And I think that's that's almost representative of the whole movie because there's such care and effort Mm. gone into creating something which is completely idiotic. Yeah. And, And going back to comparing this with other sort of bad taste modern comedies, which are just thrown together in the laziest way possible. Mm. Or just pointing at the thing and going, look, is oh, it that... me,
1: the Spartans, or something? Where they
0: just go, look, this is a bit from another film. Well, in fact, tying everything together, I was going to point to A Million Ways to Die in the West, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. which is Seth MacFarlane. talking talk about Family Guy earlier. Mm. And the one... I saw that in the cinema. It was one of the worst films I saw that year. I don't know why I thought I, it would be a good idea to go and see it. I think I was just... You, you just hated it. I just, I just wanted to leave the house. But the one bit of that movie that actually got a positive reaction out of the audience I saw it with is a scene where his character sees um, lights on in a shed at the end of the town uh, late one night. He goes there to see what's going on. He opens the door, and inside is Doc Brown working on the DeLorean. And... The reaction from the audience was, "Oh, ah, yeah. oh, specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I like Back to the Future. That was a thing that happened." Mm. And they're so pleased to see Christopher Lloyd as Donald yeah. Brown because, because who would, wouldn't? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, the one bit of the movie they liked is the bit that was a different movie that
1: reminds them <laughs> of a better, funnier movie. And this is not a remotely original point, but this—that's Seth MacFarlane's career, isn't it? Is pointing at things going. Look at that do you remember this is a, this is something do you remember i mean there's the, there's an inexplicable bit in an episode of Family Guy where they do the going to bed song from the sound of music um, and the three kids line up and they sing this song and they go up the stairs to the bedroom and it's basically it's a perfectly straight rendition of the song, and I watch it, and i 'm not sure whether in the context of Family Guy it's done perfectly straight because that was one of the conditions that they had of having to use the song or whether it's done perfectly straight, because it's simply funny enough to go, look, it's The Sound of Music, but it's the characters from Family Guy doing The Sound of Music.
0: Laugh, you scum. I- yeah, I mean Seth MacFarlane really loves musicals. Mm. Uh, he's, he's very well known for his love of musicals. He actually has his own prom this year at the BBC Proms, which is unbelievable. Wow. B- Privatise the BBC now. do
1: <laughs> <laughs> close it down. It's dead to me. Although, possibly the new series of Doctor Who could change all that. We'll see. But you're on oh, board we'll time see. as well.
0: <laughs> this isn't a Doctor Who. Yeah, contest. there's no Doctor Who prom this year. Instead, so there's a Seth MacFarlane prom.
1: Yeah.
0: He, uh, yeah, he has this odd habit of going off on weird musical tangents in his shows. Like, the, the, there's that famous edition of yeah, I Know Exactly What You're About to Say. Probably where they play a full song performed by country star Conway Twitty, which is about three and a half minutes in one episode of Family Guy. All the way through, this is a clip from... Yeah, the some Grand Opry. The, the, the Grand Opry, or, or yeah. one of those popular shows, purely to fill time. And that is the kind of laziness that means he has absolutely no justification for making jokes about other people's oh, comedy. Absolutely. Because I mean, he is one of the laziest comedians it,
1: it, Funny enough that wasn't the scene. There, there's another oh. sequence where Gene Kelly dances with,
0: oh, with Jerry, Jerry Mouse, Mouse in, in Anchors, anchors Away. Anchors away. Yeah.
1: And there is a sequence in an episode of Family Guy which is that sequence but with Stewie, Stewie pasted over the top of Jerry and they play the whole thing. Again, yeah, and it's, it's done perfectly straight. And I, I just don't know if it's meant to be funny because
0: it's Family Guy. I, exactly, yeah. It's, I think it's just the fact that it's it's Stewie. And if you were to just have, like, one little excerpt of that hmm. that a sudden burst to five minutes of Stewie dancing with Gene Kelly, that would be quite funny. It's like, what? Don't you hmm. see that? But they play the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Where you say, well, yeah, Gene Kelly was a fantastic dancer great, I think I'll watch a Gene Kelly movie rather than this poorly written comedy show. Yeah. You're
1: listening to the We Hate Seth
0: MacFarlane <laughs> The <It laughs> <Because> Seth MacFarlane hatred <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: hour. Yeah, take that, Seth MacFarlane, that'll teach you to be successful and make films and things like that.
0: Yeah, but none of his films have been any good. Don't you? Yeah, even ha- even, even about... Hellboy 2 is quite ropey. The... And he's only a voice in that. I, uh, and it's, it's, it's him doing the voice of. <laughs> really going up on the sunshine. <laughs> it's fine. He it's a, father. Um, <laughs> we hate Seth uh, MacFarlane. He, uh, he has a. His, his, his character in that is a, a German ghost who walks around in what's basically like a deep sea diver's suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he has no physical form. Mm. And that's an idea from the Hellboy comic book, and that's actually a really nice idea. But his character is the same as Klaus the fish from American Dad, and he has exactly the same speaking voice. Oh right, and I think yeah, there are a lot of really good voice actors you could have hired yeah. who would have done something interesting. Is is Billy West that busy? Apparently, at, yes. at the, well, good for him. Yeah, but yeah. if not, why didn't you hire him? Yeah. And anyway, um, <laughs> talking about uh, any other comedian, uh, the restaurant sequence. Yeah, we've, we've had that bit. Sausage piano. Green's cancer video.
1: Oh, the little boy. Oh, yes. Again, genuinely funny. But another example of the film suddenly going all weird and pro-faced and, all oh, we mustn't go too far at the end, when he runs... So the, the, the running gag is that this kid just gets more and more horribly injured through the film, so he gets hit by a baseball. He's, yeah, he,
0: he's, he accidentally has a, gets a baseball in the face from his father.
1: And he gets hit by something in the restaurant. Where is that the boat? Because he's in the restaurant, he gets injured, there's a point where he falls over and cracks himself
0: on the side of the car. And his face is covered in blood. Yes. I think that... that it reminds me of... Um, a maxim of Kenny Everett's, mm. which is that a lot of blood, a lot of blood and guts is funny. Yeah. But just a little bit is actually quite creepy and unpleasant. Yes. So he falls over and hits his face against the side of a car, but he's covered in blood, like he's just gone face first into a bowl of spaghetti. And then I forget how else he. But anyway, and at, and at the end of the. Oh, sorry. Carry on. Well, at the end of the
1: film, when they're coming back from Pakistan. He runs forwards and he's obviously meant to have got hit by the plane's propeller because there's an enormous gout of blood and the crowd reacts horrified. But then you get the kid's voiceover saying something like, I'm okay." Yeah, And and it just seems odd that that's there. As if they're afraid of going too far and afraid of killing a kid. And it's just another one of these moments when the film suddenly pulls back as if this film, which has done all these other things, suddenly... Don't want
0: to upset people. Well, that I, I thought it was. It worked in the context because whatever he did, whatever whatever happened to him in connection with that propeller, it's not survivable. Yeah, and, it's yet, and yet it's oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. Which is it's going back to the cartoonish thing again. Yeah, where it's almost like Wiley e. Coyote running through a propeller, getting sliced up, yeah. and then just pushing all his slices back together again.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's yeah I, I can I can I can sort of see that at, at the time it seemed to undercut what have been a joke that was building up which was just that the kids seemed to get more and more horribly
0: hurt each time but he always bounces back yes and he like like having you know, been beaten up and having his face smashed in all the way through just bef- and that beginning of that end scene he's fine mm. I don't think he might he maybe has a black eye but I, like nothing um... else so yeah he'll maybe like have a few cuts and bruises from where he ran through an aerocra propeller. But yeah, he'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> bit of bit of disinfectant, it'll be okay. Yeah. Another bit that I did enjoy—really just recounting bits that I like. That's fine because I—I um, I keep finding that that's the thing that the,
1: the bits that you like are often the bits that I kind of reacted to quite strongly. But it's, I'm
0: sorry, what was the bit you liked? Um, it's where he where he returns to the animation studio uh, towards the end of the movie. Having talked his way in through security before by saying, "Oh, I'm here. I've got the bag for the for the for the, for the, for the guy," pointing at the pointing at the ground, and saying, "Oh, uh, Japan forces," and, and just talking gibberish to get through security. The second time he goes there, he runs screaming through the building, yes. through the metal detector, which goes off, and he, he runs into Dave Davison's office, leaping onto a table, and Dave, Dave, Dave says slightly nervously. God, is there a bomb in there? <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, that made, that reminds me. Or if this was made in 2001, because they couldn't have made it any later. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was wondering exactly when it was
1: made in 2001. Um, Before September. Yeah, because equally, the whole... I, don't, I can't have a feeling if it had been made later, the ending would have been different as well. I don't know whether you would have had the whole sequence of Pakistan. I just feel that a sequence where the, at the end... The two lead characters are—are are they kidnapped or are they just arrested? I forget now exactly. The,
0: I think the idea is that they're kidnapped. Yeah,
1: they sort of. I feel that that would have been a bit. Something might have got a bit near the knuckle for people, uh, you know, after after September.
0: Yeah, well, I suppose so, but it depends on. What kind of political connections are prepared to draw between oh, Pakistan yeah. and the Taliban? Yes, the is idea is. Yeah. In pa- Sorry, I've just involved you in a diplomatic incident, <laughs> <laughs> and now I can never go there. But I think the idea is that they're sort of bandits or some some kind of criminal gang, yeah. chancing their arm by kidnapping some Americans. Which, not to impugn Pakistan too heavily, I can imagine it would probably still happen there because it doesn't seem like the friendliest country in the world. Although I'm sure it's lovely. Going back to what I was saying about... There's, there's, there's a
1: point about halfway through the film where I hated Tom Green. That's the point when the film... I kind of began to get a handle on how the film worked and it's like, OK, this is fine. This is meant to be nonsense. I'm not meant to be sitting here worrying why are people not reacting it like human beings to what's going on? Uh, and that was kind of the point where I, I, I felt like I got the film, the whole sequence as well, where... Dave Davidson sort of pulls out a chequebook and says, oh, I'll give you a million dollars to make this cartoon. And, and I'm sitting there first going, that's not how money works. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, actually, fine. And, I kind of, and that, was, that was the point where if, if I had to say the film won me over, it was like, yeah, OK, fine, I understand. Now I understand how this works. And I kind of went, I just went with it for the rest of the film. And it helps that right after that you get the sequence with the helicopter and then you get the, the the helicopter lands and he's having the romantic conversation with the girlfriend and she they do the whole thing about, I can't hear you. Which, again, I think is just meant to be a parody of
0: those sorts of scenes yeah. from, from, romantic, from rom-coms and things. And I like that it's the one point in the movie where his character is being genuinely sincere hmm. and really speaking from the heart. But the gag is we can't hear a word he's saying and he's brought her a bag of jewels. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes, because that's the, that's the level his cartoon brain is working at. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really lovely sequence, because it's... I, I, one thing that I do like about the film that does that does feel... It feels wrong to say that it's transgressive, but the reveal that Betty's in a wheelchair early on, it's, it's played as a joke, mm. but it never... It's never said, oh, she's in a wheelchair. Woo Hmm. Gordon really doesn't have a problem with her. Nobody really reacts to it. Yes, was... the only person who does is Jim, who <laughs> there's the great line where he's saying, oh, my God, she's a cripple. Oh, and yes. he says, oh, do you, have, do you have a problem with my legs? Says, no, no, you're the one who has a problem with your legs. Which I thought was well, the only character in the film who could say that. Yeah. <laughs> but I that, yeah, the, the, the fact that she's in a wheelchair is, it's kind of like a non-issue. Nobody it's... really
1: remarks on that. It, it, the reveal that she's sitting down and then she she backs away from the desk and, and heads off I think and you, again you'll have to bear with me because this is kind of half remembered stuff there was a terrible comedy series a few years ago um, and one of the hilarious jokes that they did and this was a hidden camera show I think one of the hilarious jokes that they did was that a sexy girl would walk up to a man in a bar and they'd have a conversation and you know she would start coming on to him and then she would, yeah, you know, they would, uh, you know, the, the, they would start talking. And then she would head off to go to the toilet, and she would walk off in the most sort of hilarious, cripple fashion possible. And that was the joke was that she had oh, a gammy leg. Yeah, that she, that was the joke was that she oh, had gosh. a gammy. Yeah, the, the the joke was basically, oh look at this. She he doesn't know that she's actually a cripple, and look at his surprised face. Was this a Don Jolly show? No, but it was basically it was that kind of thing. I, I really wish I could remember.
0: Was it British or American? It was a British show, oh, and I,
1: I feel like I'm just on the edge of remembering what the hell it was called.
0: But it was it was. Rubbish. It sounds horrible. I think. I it, mean, that's the most. Yeah. It's it's lazy and deeply unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's where this where Freddie Got Finger takes the moral high ground. Mm. Yeah, she's in a wheelchair. Well, that was, what's the problem
1: with that? The, what What caught me initially was that when I saw that sequence with. The, in Freddy Got Fingered, I was reacting to the memory of this lousy TV show. Oh, right. But actually, yeah, you're, you're quite right. I don't think anybody, apart from the dad, nobody reacts badly to that. I don't think it's it's just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, then, of course, again, in a parody of the the character learning to follow his dream she gets her jet-propelled wheelchair
0: yeah I love that she's a nurse and her hobby is making rockets and that yeah. kind of thing and she wants to make a jet-propelled wheelchair which looks like the most useless object in the world and she says oh she manages to build it well now what yes. well, well well done Yeah, but it's a completely useless item but again, it feeds into the whole thing. Oh, she's achieved her she? dream, and then inspires yeah. him to yes. to quit his cheese shop. Yeah, he's working in a. And again, again. Monty Python connection, a cheese shop.
1: Yes, yeah. And again, another good joke where the
0: manager of the cheese shop looks like he's about 14 or something. I've been through that. I actually had a job, it was a summer away from school, and my boss was 16. He was younger than me, and that was. <laughs> and he even told me off once because I was skiving. Oops. But uh, yes, that's that's something that I think it's almost universal that at some point you're going to have a boss who's younger than you, yeah. but acts as though they know better. And that's what, in my case, he actually did know better because he worked there for quite a few years. One thing I really liked is the whole idea of the cheese sandwich, this recurring, yes, yeah. recurring concept of the cheese sandwich, which comes out of something from the uh, Tom Green's own show, where he, he would... I think it was just along the lines of him striking up a conversation with someone in a park about their lunch and asking if he could have it. And they were eating cheese sandwiches. And he was completely baffled by the idea of just having a cheese sandwich, just cheese on its own. Why you would have that? And I kind of see what it means, because it, particularly in the film where it's American-style cheese, where it's yeah. processed and thinly sliced, why would you have a sandwich with just a slice of... What's it called? Not dairy, Lee... Why would you have that? It's like the most nothing yeah. food, yeah. not even any nutrition. And it's it's just kind of a stand-in for the most boring, bland thing. And exactly. Yeah. And, and so that his job is making these cheese sandwiches, which is completely just empty, meaningless, nothing. And he Anyone's working in a like a subway type sandwich mm-hmm. shop where they just serve these <laughs> cheese sandwiches. Why do they? How are they even in business? <laughs> But there's another, like, nice visual gag where he's mopping up at the end of the day and then he lifts them up and starts mopping the tabletops and just smashing everything onto the floor and not really, because he's just beyond caring about his situation by this point. And there's actually, before that, there's the heartbreaking moment where he's looking at his, all his animation designs and all his sketches in the rain and he just closes folder and dumps it in the bin. Hmm. And I thought, oh no, don't do that. Well, that's the kind again. It's it's it's, it's the just screenwriting just, structure because that's yeah. that's the low, the low point. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, that's that's actually a real low point because he's giving up on his whole dream to work in a cheese shop, which is the worst thing he can imagine. Yeah, and he's just he's ruined everything. Yeah including driven his mother away because he's claiming his dad's a child master. Well, that's, that's it. I mean, and that's... Yeah. I mean, at that moment, is I think, difficult to defend because he just comes out with that out of nowhere and it spontaneously ruins his father's life. You,
1: you've obviously got the whole thing that you sit there and go, well,
0: in the real world, this would be horrible, but in exactly
1: the same way that in the hospital when he starts trying to help the woman give birth to the baby, you're sitting there going, well, that's sexual assault, mister. and <laughs> But it's not the real world.
0: It's uh, it's it's the crazy world of Tom Green. Gord eventually snaps and says, "Oh fuck you, Dad." Hmm. Uh, his dad has been drinking very heavily. So, "Oh fuck me, oh you are oh, yeah, you want to fuck me, don't you?" And then he drops his trousers yeah. and starts waving his arse at him. And the mum comes
1: down and misinterprets what she sees and then goes off. And yeah, it's that thing that this is kind of one of these moments when I wish that I had better knowledge of teen films beyond having watched Weird Science in 1989 uh, on BBC Two. Um, It's that thing of, I'm sure that that is a very, very typical part of the structure of these kind of films, that there's a point when the inability of the lead character to make a success for his life causes problems for the family.
0: I'm sure it's, but if I'd seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I'd be all over this, and I'd be going, "Oh, this bit's like this, and this bit's well, like this." Well, that, right. that's the thing. There is that moment in Ferris Bueller towards the end where, where they've, take, they've, they've, they've have you, you haven't seen Ferris Bueller? No. <laughs> God, I, why are you even on this? Show? I haven't even seen Parker Lewis <laughs> Can't Lose. I'm just. I'm rubbish. Oh, well, neither have I. Oh. I mean, did you know that there was a Parker Lewis Can't Lose was launched the same time as a Ferris Bueller TV off. No, I... and they're pretty much the same show, except Ferris Bueller's sister was played by Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Who is now Louis Theroux's cousin-in-law? Oh, good for her. Was he in the first yes, yeah Another <laughs> <laughs> no, film I haven't seen. So. Yes, but the point is, his best friend Cameron, who's the one who, who has this awful life, this horrible domineering father, and they've taken the car up for the day, and they te- they take the car back, and they have the idea of putting a brick on the accelerator and running it in reverse to take all the miles. Oh. Away. And obviously, this doesn't work. And Cameron says, "You know what? I'm." You know, enough of this, I'm going to stand up to my dad. You know, I've, I've had it with this. I've had it with him bullying me and treating me like this. I'm going to stand up for myself. And the weird thing is, we see him resolve to take this decision. We never see his father. His oh. father doesn't appear in the film ever. We, only, we don't meet any of his family. We only see Cameron on his own. So a lot of people have speculated that Cameron is a figment of Ferris's imagination, or vice versa, hmm. that it's some kind of cuddly version of Fight Club. I think there should be I, I want to see a modern day version uh, a re, uh, not a remake a sequel with the roles reversed where Cameron's the one who's got his life together but Ferris is sort of living in this horrible pent up world and, and they're now both in their late 40s and Cameron teaches Ferris to, to live again <laughs> I think that would be great because yeah. it would be sort of you know, recapturing your youth whilst remaining an adult I think there's a market there but it would also mean horribly sullying one of the most popular films of the 80s. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll,
1: we'll make that, and then we'll make uh, Goonies 2 or something as well. There, there will never be a Goonies 2.
0: See if we can sully that one as well. I'm not that big a fan of the Goonies. Uh, I think it I think it plays into a. I think Because I know it has a lot of fans in America, and I think yeah. it plays into a particular mindset and a particular nostalgia about childhood yeah. that... It's co- I don't have and I'm not sure it's particularly a British
1: no trope. I can't it's, it's certainly not a film i can I can really relate to and it's a fun movie I'm listening to Harmontown and uh, I think a, that's a, it's a film that comes up quite often mentioned in Harmontown and Dan Harmon I hope I'm not putting words into his mouth will say that I don't think he's the world's biggest goonies fan and the studio and the audience to the podcast will always react so it's obviously a very very fondly
0: we film in America, but yeah, particularly with the particularly, I think with the generation that Harmon has attracted as his fans, hmm. I think that's the, the exact right generation. And it's, it's a good film; it's very enjoyable. It just hasn't struck that particular chord. No. Um, but you could say the same thing about it. there's a, there's a quite a
1: few films like that, but they're sort of touchstones. It's a a film I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about teen films again is Karate Kid. Oh yes, because yeah. again, that's Uh, one of these films that's got that very traditional teen movie structure. But, as well, about 1987, I remember reading something which talked about Karate Kid already having passed into American folk mythology. And I just thought,
0: it's not that good. Well, maybe sort of popular culture mythology, I think you could say, even though it's a remake of Rocky, with Mm. the same director. And again, it's not a bad film, it's a very enjoyable film. And bits of it really have become cultural touchstones, like yes. Mr. Miyagi yes, is such yeah. a a great indelible character, and has become like the archetype of the the, the wise, wise. Yeah. teacher.
1: Yeah, like, yes, he's yeah. kind of taken over from Yoda in a way. But uh,
0: yeah, but it is that. Thing That's that... a very racist thing to say.
1: Yoda, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's a very traditionally structured film. I'm sure if you went through it by. What's that system they call? Is it called Save the Cat or something? Where yes. you go, they say at this point this must happen, and here's the high point, and here's the low point, and here's how we realize. Or hero,
0: def- the hero's journey. Yeah, that kind Campbell of Joseph Campbell stuff. stuff yeah. I'm very con- yeah. I- Was well, that something about Freddy Got Finger that I like? Is that it just tramples all over the idea of formula.
1: Well, it take But it ta- but it, ta- it takes the hero's journey because you still have the dream and you probably have the meeting with the goddess and all the other things that Dan Harmon goes on about endlessly but it just again it puts it puts nonsense into them so that the low point is he's working in a cheese sandwich shop the high point is seeing his uh, wheelchair using girlfriend realize her successful dream of inventing rocket motors but it's, it's all non, it's non it's nonsense. For it's
0: subverting the structure by using it
1: yeah, yeah. as a machine to feed the audience gibberish. Yeah, and that's the same kind of thing that I suppose Mon- Monty Python and the Holy Grail does. Actually, that's a really bad example because the- Monty Python and the Holy Grail is just a series of sketches thrown together. But again, it's the same it's the same kind of thing that the TV series did a lot better, where Graham Chapman looks out of a window and goes, "Good God, this building is surrounded by film." That's where. It uses the structure of something else and it, it parodies it, or it uses the production methods and it parodies that kind of thing. And that's what Freddy Got Finger do, is doing, is it's, 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 it's parodying the, the hero's journey. Sorry, I got kind of lost in my own metaphor,
0: though. No, that's OK. <coughs> well, I think to sum up, I really like Freddy Got Finger. I think it's a very creative movie, and I've, actually I would have compare it to South Park in its using sort of formula combined with obscenity to actually make a point. In this case, it's, it's, a, it's trying to sort of strike a blow for creative freedom by just taking this $11 million mm. and creating nonsense. And just uh, and try and blow it in
1: as as stupid a way as possible. I, I you know The scene with the helicopter, again, I can imagine that they got the money and just went, right, what's the most expensive thing we can do with this? Yeah. They hired a helicopter and flew it around for a bit. I watched it on a Saturday afternoon, and then in the evening I watched the Grand Budapest Hotel, and... It made watching what's obviously a much much better film, a very strange experience because suddenly you're much more aware of the art i don't I, I'm struggling to look, but, but it kind of left me much more aware of where I would have watched a film at like the Grand Budapest Hotel and just gone, "Oh yeah, that's very good, you know it looks lovely and it's very clever, suddenly much more aware of the the processes of filmmaking, and I don't know if that's just because earlier in the day I'd watched a film which
0: took the processes of filmmaking and just made them utterly stupid. Mm. So you say that you enjoy other films more, having watched this? Possibly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that may that's... not be that may not be a good thing. Well, I suppose it could be because it's it, if it helps you appreciate movies, not necessarily this movie, mm. but movies in general, then it can only have been a success. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I would say it's uh, it's a, it's a secret success of its own. Bad taste does not equal a bad movie, and. Um, as he says uh, at the beginning of the film and at the end, he should be very proud. Thanks very much to Chris Arnsby for making the time in his lovely home to accommodate this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to tweet us at cinema underscore limbo. Or if you have any personal messages for me or recommendations, feel free to contact me at j underscore j underscore Phillips. And until next time, remember, I'm a sexy boy. Goodbye. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com.